You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths, tales written and performed by A.P. Weber. This is A.P. Weber. It's good to have you with me. We're continuing the adventures of Woodrow the Wicked with the final two chapters of The Moon Shadow. If you haven't listened to chapters 1 through 18 of The Moon Shadow, go back and do that now, because we're getting toward the end of the book with this episode. But before we get started, please consider rating and reviewing Lies and Half-Truths wherever you listen to it. Or send an episode of the show to a friend you think might enjoy it. That kind of thing really helps. If you're not sure where to start, Cascade Rock has been popular. Thanks. Now for the recap. The Coup Island Con is over. The Fallen Angel assuaged. The Stone Family plot subverted. Now what? Let's find out. And now, Lies and Half-Truths presents The Moon Shadow, first book of the adventures of Woodrow the Wicked. Part 4. The Coup Island Con. Chapter 19. The angel landed among the trees near the peak of the island. Change your mind? Rick stepped from the shadows into the silver light of the broken moon. Beneath his arm, he held an iron-banded chest. You said some things that were perplexing to me, said the angel. How long have you been fallen, brother? asked Rick. Not long, the angel admitted. Rick laughed. Were you bluffing back there? I told the truth, mostly. But you were bluffing, right? Yes. Well played. I suppose now you've fed from the magic stone. Isn't that right? The angel hesitated. So to speak. What's your game, brother? Why are you wasting time with these mortals? Just take the stone and be done with it. It does not belong to me. Right. The god. Well, take the stone and go back. Go back to the heavens. You don't seem very happy here. The stone is broken. I must locate the other half before I return to the heavens. Hmm. Well, good luck with that. You had something you wanted to ask me? You spoke of... The angel began pensively. The incubus thing? You don't really know how it's done, do you? What? No, I wouldn't. I mean, what? It's all right. Nothing to be ashamed of. We fallen angels have a long history with human women. Ever hear of the Nephilim? I may have produced a few myself. The angel furrowed his brow. 
As I suspected. He clenched his fists. You know, said Rick, that reminds me of something that might help you on your little quest. The angel unclenched his fists. What? The Nephilim, the children of women and angels. They were a powerful race at one time. Long before I fell, the gods saw them as an abomination. But they were jealous, jealous of what the Nephilim had accomplished. The Nephilim had built a city like none other in this base little world at the bottom of the universe. It was filled with wonders of their own creation, wonders for even the gods to look upon. When the gods set their might against them, the Nephilim sunk their city beneath the ocean to hide, taking all their creations with them. I heard of one of these inventions of theirs while studying philosophy in Thanatos. It's a mirror, for lack of a better word, a looking-glass indeed. You see, the Nephilim had this philosophy that all things on earth are broken, broken right in half, and we are lost without our other halves, lost and unhappy. And the tragedy is that no one knows what that other half is. No one knows what kind of a thing he was meant to be. But this mirror could show you the other half of anything. You look in the mirror and you see it, just like you would see a reflection. As Rick spoke, the angel watched a crystal droplet form under his eye and run down his blood-stained face, leaving a path through the red to the demon's pale skin. They were both silent for a long time. Thank you for your help, said the angel. I will seek out this mirror of the Nephilim. I often wonder what I would see if I looked at myself in the mirror, Rick said, rubbing the tear from his cheek. Sometimes I think that this base world is my other half. It's filthy and corrupt and altogether unlike the heavens. Up there, above the lunar sphere, everything runs in ceaselessly perfect circles. Its hierarchies are set and always will be. But down here, everyone is fighting over the scraps. Today I get the lion's share of the scraps. But who knows, maybe tomorrow I am vanquished by a more powerful rival. There are no hierarchies in this dung heap, none that last anyway, and that's the way I like it. I pity you, said the angel. Rick gave him a look like a fly had just flown into his face. If you disagree, then why are you here, he said. The angel looked up through the leafy branches. He saw the stars and the broken continents of the moon. I don't know, he said. Rick hefted the chest of money onto his shoulder. Then you had better find that mirror, the demon said, and flew away. Ali, whose apartment was as sunny as the first time Cassandra visited it. Dim limped over on three limbs, his left arm in a sling. He wore a sullen expression. Can I get you anything while you wait, mean girl? Dim said. 
Did I see you fighting a demon the other night? Dim dipped his head to hide a bashful smile. Yeah, I helped too, Jim piped in. He had a cast on his foot and was lounging on a sofa, comically unsuited to his girth. I'm very impressed. You guys must be really strong. I work out, said Dim with a casual wince. No, he doesn't, Jim called from the couch. Alihu emerged from his office with a bespectacled man. The man looked vaguely familiar to Cassandra. Cassandra, glad you can make it, Alihu said. Come to collect your payment, I suppose. Yes, and let me just say what a pleasure it has been doing business with you. Well, you sure delivered on your word. The mercenaries are more or less done for. But no, I don't think I will be paying you. What? I'd like to introduce you to golf from the Privateer's Guild Hall on Batoon. The man stepped forward and extended a hand. I believe we have already had the pleasure of meeting, young lady. I let you in the back entrance some weeks ago. Cassandra stood rooted to the floor. She could feel her pulse racing, and she had a fuzzy sensation in her head. I suppose you can guess why I'm here, said Golf. But I may as well make it official. Cassandra of Clan Roco, by the authority of the Privateer's Guild, I hereby order you to end your drift and return to Merchtown to stand trial for the crimes of making unauthorized contracts in the name of the Guild and impersonating a Guild agent. Part 4 The Coup Island Con Chapter 20 The moon shadow flew up through a gray veil of rain clouds, leaving the disastrous events of Ku Island behind in the mist. Woodrow sat in the cockpit with his goggles on, his left arm hovering over the lens in the armrest. Through the goggles, he saw the ship's invisible dials and levers like light projections on a transparent wall. He raised the vessel up above the rain clouds. With his right hand, he interacted with the projected images seen through his goggles, reaching out as if to touch them in mid-air. If he did enough fine-tuning now, he could walk away from the deck, and Hartford would navigate the moonshadow to their destination. Of course, Woodrow would have to come back periodically to make some adjustments, but at least he didn't have to steer the whole way. They were headed to Merchtown, the seat of the Privateer's Guild's power, an ancient and famous seaboard city whose flooded thoroughfares presented deep connections to the sea, as well as entrenched, corrupt power structures winding amongst the stone architecture. There, Cassandra would stand trial for what Woodrow considered to be a profoundly ironic crime. He had no idea what to expect once they got there. When the work was done, he got up and left the cockpit. Keep an eye on things, he told Hartford on his way out the door, and the golem clicked and whirred dutifully, seeming well at ease back on the moon shadow where he belonged. Tamberline joined him, emerging sleepily from a vein of sunlight, and together they went looking for Cassandra. To this end, they climbed the stairs to the surface deck. 
When they emerged topside, the angel frowned at Woodrow from his perch at the moonshadow's stern. The girl seems upset, the angel said. Woodrow regarded the angel momentarily, marveling at his acknowledgement of another person's emotional state. He almost made a barbed comment on this subject, but decided to let it go. Instead, he went to the moonshadow's starboard side, where Cassandra hunched against the rail, looking out at the broken sea of clouds below. It's hot out here, Woodrow said, leaning his back against the rail and resting his elbows on it. I'm fine, she said, her voice flat. Woodrow leaned over and traced the wood grain on the handhold with his finger. He cleared his throat. So, the Nephilim mirror thing, he said. I've never heard the angel talk so much about anything. Cassandra cracked a half-smile. I've never heard him talk so much, period. Do you think he'll find what he's looking for in that library in Merchtown? The library of lost books, she said, as if offended by Woodrow's ignorance. Of course, if the legends about Nephilonia are true, the library of lost books will have information on it. Hmm. Woodrow gnawed the inside of his cheek. If so, I guess that means I'll be going with him. To a sunken city, wherever that turns out to be. You're lucky. That's one way of looking at it. You are a mysterious sunken city? I would love to see that. She looked at her hands. There's a lot of things I'd love to see. What do you mean? He leaned into her and said, What's going to happen when we get to Merchtown? I don't know, but my drift is over. Well, Woodrow said, you can join my crew. Cassandra seemed not to hear the offer. It's just, she went on, I'm not done. I haven't made up my mind yet. About what? She looked at Woodrow as if she didn't understand the question, then down at her hands again. About a lot of things. I've been thinking, she said after a moment. I want to say I'm sorry about what happened back there on Ku. I shouldn't have talked to you into that. It was irresponsible. I just couldn't admit it in the moment. Don't worry about it. I shouldn't have gone along with it. She looked sidelong at him for a moment, as if pondering the sharing of a secret. Then she said, Hey, do you want to see my tattoo? Woodrow stood up straight. Really? You're giving me passage back to Merchtown. I guess it's only fair. She unfastened the hood and cowl she always wore and lifted up the back of her shirt to her shoulders. The tattoo of passage was between her shoulder blades in fresh black ink. She craned her head as if to look at the tattoo herself. The down-pointing trident is the symbol of Clan Rocco. That triangle with the wave under it means I'm on a drift. They'll add a dock when I return, and a ship symbol when I get my first command. What else? Oh, I earned that shell when I ran a successful con before I left on my drift. What's the heart-shaped one mean? Cassandra pulled her shirt back down. Nothing. She picked up her cowl and looked at it, running her fingers along its seam. Nothing, Woodrow prodded. I mean, I don't know what it means. I'm trying to figure it out. Let's not talk about it. Then she put her cowl back on. When she turned back to him, she wore a sly smile. So, what do you say? She said with a glint in her eye. 
Want to teach me how to fly the moon shadow? The end. Thanks for listening to Lies and Half-Truths. This episode was written and performed by A.P. Weber and produced by Meg Weber. Our theme was provided by Josiah Martins. Original music by Mackenzie Stubbert. Please consider liking, sharing, or reviewing this podcast wherever you listen to it. You can also support me, A.P. Weber, on Patreon. In any case, please join us again next time for more Lies and Half-Truths. Half-Truths.